Welcome to the Money Advantage Podcast, empowering business owners with the permission to think differently about money so that you can consciously choose to live a meaningful and fulfilled life now. Our passion is making money simple, fun, and doable, helping you feel great about your money and getting your money working for you so you can thrive. Hi, and welcome back to the Money Advantage Podcast. This is Rachel Marshall and Bruce Weiner, your co-host. Good morning and welcome, Bruce. Good morning, Rachel. It's, uh, it's, a, it's a really nice day, and I don't know when this is going to air, but it's right before Thanksgiving, so it's great to give thanks to our listeners and everybody that uh, is, is a part of the Money Advantage. And, and this is a, uh, uh, w- once again, I hope this brings a lot of value to people because we're going to talk about policy design today, um, and it's, it's not necessarily something that people think about, and in some respects, it's, it's great that they don't think about it. Uh, my, one of my buddies from the Nelson Nash Institute, James Nethery, that I've known for 10 plus years, he's famous for saying, um, if people understand the concepts, the details don't matter, and if they don't understand the concepts, the details don't matter. And so you oh, and that's I are, so good. Yeah, it's really good. It's really, really good. And um, I hope people understand that we're going to talk a little bit about detail today, but I want people to really concentrate on the concepts involved here. And the reason for this is, um, uh, before we get into this, I want, to, I want people to understand that, what, yeah, we espouse a lot about uh, the, the virtues of cash-valued life insurance, specifically whole life. Um, but what people have to know is there's not a great difference between one company and another. And the reason for that is life insurance is an actuarial product. So it's simply the numbers and the companies must use the mortality tables that are just changing January 1st, the CSO tables. And they all use the same tables. And then they all go out and they invest in the same type of bond, interest-driven bond accounts. And so they really can't be that much different when it comes to the numbers. Now, where they can be different is how they control expenses, and they can also be different in their customer service. So those are things that I want, those concepts that I want people to kind of focus on. That's excellent. So customer service and what was the other one that you said was a major differentiator? I just want to make sure that we um, remind people as we go through this show. And, and how they control expenses. Yes. Okay. How they control expenses and customer service. I'm going to make sure that we come back to that as well. So today we are talking about life insurance policy design. And for some of you who might be at different stages of the education process and figuring out what life insurance is all about, this podcast might be of value to you at this exact moment, or it might be something that you want to set on the back burner for a little bit later in your process. So what I do want to talk about is when it comes to policy design, you could almost think of the main forms of premium, base premium and paid up additions premium on this sliding scale from almost all base to almost all paid up additions. And there's a lot of variations of policy design in between that sliding scale, almost on the spectrum. Now, everybody does this differently. If you talk to one person, they're going to design a policy a specific way, or another person's going to design a policy differently. And some are going to design policies with almost all base premium, and some are going to design policies with almost all paid-up additions premium. 
Now, there are reasons that one type of policy design may look different or better with a different viewpoint. And I really want to stress that it's about the viewpoint. So again, as Bruce was talking about, there's differences between life insurance carriers, there's differences between individual products with that particular carrier. And so this conversation we're about to have today about policy design, I just really want to point out is not a one size fits all conversation. You cannot say this is the exact policy design ratio that you always use in every case with every carrier with every product. It just doesn't work that way. So we're going to be talking about the policy design, almost like these various levers, but more importantly than policy design, because again, those are details that if you understand the concept, they don't matter. And if you don't understand the concept, it's definitely not going to be relevant to you. Um, what we're really wanting is the resulting performance the performance that you get as a privatized banking life insurance owner. We want to make sure that those things that matter for you, how it drives right away today and way out into the future, those are really the things that matter absolutely the most. So instead of looking at a policy and all of those levers so closely that your eyes start crossing, because anytime you analyze something to that level, it can just be overwhelming and super frustrating. We want to look at the big picture and zoom out and look at a long-term perspective. So today we're gonna to dive into why we design policies the way that we do specifically with regards to base premium and paid up additions premium. Now again, I do wanna reiterate, for the person who's shopping for privatized banking, maybe you're building your knowledge base to become an educated buyer, consumer, user, driver, owner of life insurance, this is probably gonna be more relevant to you right now. It's more technical, but if you're still in the consideration phase or you're just having an awareness now of privatized banking, it may not matter as much to you. It's going to give you a great, some great things to think about. Maybe you can set this on the back burner and come back to it at a later stage. So again, where are we in the big picture of the cash flow system in terms of building time and money freedom? First, we have this foundational level where you want to be as efficient as possible. So you're keeping as much of the money you make and having as great of a cash flow from your income. Then you want to protect that wealth and then put your money to work building more cash flow. And so we're really in privatized banking, which is in that middle component, which is the protection element, focused on protecting your human life value, giving a death benefit protection, but also it's this almost golden key that plugs into every other area of your financial life and improves your investing performance and improves your financial efficiency as well. So today, with this conversation, you're going to feel more in control as a privatized banking owner and be able to really be able to understand that product more efficiently. So Bruce, let's go ahead and jump into this conversation. And as we kind of zoomed out, now we want to zoom into that policy design. What is the difference between base and paid up additions premium? Yeah, well, the, the uh, permanent life insurance, uh, whole life, sometimes called ordinary life, is the purest form of insurance. So you're basically you're basically paying a monthly amount for something that will happen at some time, whether it's at a death or at a paid up situation. It used to be at age 100, and now most companies are at uh, 121. Uh, it doesn't mean you have to pay all the way to 100 or 121, but that brings up uh, the first point is the design capabilities, the flexibility, some companies have what they call 10 pay products. Some, some companies have 20 pay products. Some companies have 60 pay products. And some pump companies don't even have a paid up product until 
age 121. Um, and when we're talking about that, we're talking Which, about that would mean how long of a time frame that you pay into the premium. Correct. And, Sorry, uh, go ahead. That, no, that's fine. Um, and so what we're talking there is the base premium for a, a set amount of coverage that is guaranteed and it does not change. And uh, the greatest analogy that uh, we often use is like purchasing a house. Mm -hmm. So you, you purchase the house for a set price and you pay on it and you could, you could tell the company, I want to have a 10-year mortgage. I want to have a 20-year mortgage. I want to have a 30-year mortgage. Um, if, if a company would, like we, we joke about, because there are in Japan, we, you could have a 100-year mortgage. Mm -hmm. Or you could simply just say, I want to pay it off right now. And you wouldn't have a mortgage. But that would be what, what's referred to as a single premium whole life insurance contract. And so what, what happens then is you've paid that house off right there. And then the house may appreciate in value. Well, the house value goes up. That would be like taking dividends that we're going to talk about in just a little bit, dividends and buying more life insurance with those dividends. So with the base policy, that's where most of your death benefit comes from. Because that death benefit is a large amount and you've made a contractual arrangement with the company and you say, I want to actually have this larger death benefit for this, the, the amount of money I'm putting into. Oh, and by the way, one of the reasons that's important is because of the modified endowment contract rules that the IRS put into place in the 80s because the, one of the reasons dividends are not taxable in the tax code is because the IRS wants this to be seen as an insurance product and not as an investment. Right. And, and before that, people were looked were because they could design them where they would put very little death benefit, say five thousand, and then stuffing one hundred thousand dollars into these policies, and they were growing tax free. And the IRS made a ruling and said, no, 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 that's more like an investment now. Mm -hmm. So they said they basically flipped it. And, and um, the MEC calculations are much more, uh, too complicated to talk about in this show. Uh, the heck yeah, but, are too complicated yeah, but basically they said, yeah, you can't continue to have this tax advantage growth and not ever pay tax again and call it still insurance. So that was really the point. But And I want to come back to something where you're talking about the, the buying the house analogy as well. So what you're saying with base premium is that generally, you're besides a single premium where you pay it all at once, generally you're making payments. And at some point, say five years into a 30-year mortgage, you haven't fully paid for that mortgage yet. You're still working towards it. And that's kind of the way that base premium would be you're still working towards paying off that death benefit. It's not fully paid up until you complete that payment cycle or the payment process. And, and another thing that's very important is, and people know this, I think either they know it from uh, experience or they know it uh, instinctively, you pay most of your paying, uh, most of your payment actually doesn't go to principal. So you don't build up very much equity in, the in, a, in a home. Uh, it's the same way in a policy most of the base premium doesn't build much cash value early on in the policy. 
Yes. So if we had to think about what base premium is doing, you said it really well. It's buying a lot of death benefit. It's not putting a lot towards cash value, not a lot towards equity in the policy. So what is the difference between that and then paid up addition premium, which is the other end of that seesaw or the other side of the spectrum, if you will? Yeah. So let's just stay with the house analogy. I think people understand this. So if I then go to the house and I put an addition on my house, whether it's another room or I often use a garage, and mm-hmm. I then pay cash for that, uh, I have paid that up. So I don't have to give any more money for that garage or that for that uh, room addition. It's paid up. So the same thing happens in an insurance contract if the rider is placed on there. So this is the specially designed part. Most mutual companies have an, a rider you can put, a, put on it. It's called the paid-up additions rider. Companies call it different things, but it, it basically means that there's going to be a mini contract inside the major contract that can, you can buy more life insurance, and it's paid up with a single payment. So yeah, that's why it's called paid-up additions. There's an additional contract within that that increases the death benefit and it's paid up for that for that particular contract you never have to put another dime in it so let's go back to the house you've paid off your garage you never have to pay another dime for that garage you still have the main part of your house that you're paying off that would be like your base premium and the garage is like the paid up additions you've paid it up so the the uh, the bank doesn't recognize that because it's already paid up. Excellent. So we have the portion that's already paid up, which is a paid up additions rider. You have the base premium that is paying towards this bigger death benefit that's not that it that's going to take a lot more time to pay up. So when we look at that, then what does paid up additions? do? What are the implications of having paid up additions in a policy? Well, Rachel, some of our listeners will enjoy this because I keep going back to the house analogy. But if I then put that paid up garage on my house, I've also increased the value of my house. Yes. Um, And the equity has built up for the entire thing, not, not so much for the base part of the house, the main, but for the entire thing. So now I could go to a bank and I say, and I could say, look, I have this this uh, this asset. Part of it's paid up. So, will you allow me now to to get another loan against the garage? And they're going to say, well, of course, because it's paid up. So that's one of the biggest thing that the paid up additions does for your policy is it's paid up. So the insurance company now has a collateral that it can use to give you a loan based upon the money that you put up in the paid up additions and partially what you also put into the base premium. So they have collateral and that way they're more than willing to just easily give you a loan using those two things as collateral. And that's how you accelerate the early high cash value in a properly designed life insurance contract. Absolutely. So then would it be fair to say and I know that it is, but I want to make sure that we're saying this correctly, that a paid-up additions portion of the premium is not going to build as much death benefit as the base premium, dollar for dollar. So if you put in 
$10,000 into base premium versus $10,000 into paid up additions, you're going to get more death benefit per the, the base premium versus the paid up additions rider, correct? Yeah, and Rachel, this is, and once again, we'll go back to the, back to the house. If, we, if you did not have the ability, if, if we did not have the ability to borrow money to buy a house and everybody had to buy a house on cash, now, this is an economic principle that Bob Murphy, Dr. Bob Murphy, taught me a long time ago. If everybody had to, to buy the house with cash, the cost of the house would have to come way down economically across the world. Because the, one of the reasons people, the, the cost of housing goes up is because you can pay it off over a long period of time. You're borrowing mm -hmm. against that. So you can make a smaller payment. Right. Well, well that's, you, that fits into your personal economy or fits into your cash flow system. I mean, you can make a thousand, $2,000 payment, but if you had to make a 250000 or $500,000 down payment all, all in cash, I mean, people don't hold that kind of cash. Yeah. And so that's what the base, the base premium does for you. It's allow you to get a bigger death benefit, but when you pay the... Um, when you pay it all in one lump sum, it's paid off. You never have to put, a, put another dime into it. So it doesn't build the, the death benefit as quickly, but it builds the cash much more quickly. Excellent. So now let's, let's switch over for a second because we've talked about two main types of premium that you can put into a policy. Now what I want to do is talk about the guaranteed side of the policy versus the non-guaranteed side. Yeah, and before we before we go there though, let's let's talk about there is another thing that we have to take in consideration, and we, we may not get into it in this one, but some people may be out there wondering, well, what does I heard about a term rider? What mm -hmm. does a term rider do? Uh, a term rider um, just actually increases the death benefit to satis satisfy the IRS formula for the modified endowment contract rules. So uh, we may not get into that, but if you're wondering that, that is exactly why um, we use, some people put on term riders, and we're one of those people when, when it's uh, appropriate. Okay, the next part that we really need to look at is people are always examining illustrations all the time, and um, there's always a guaranteed side and a non-guaranteed side. And the thing you've got to really understand, which is really, really important, is that when it, for any um, financial institution to put the word guaranteed by it. A multitude of lawyers have had to look at this contract to make sure that our society uh, will accept the fact that it's guaranteed. So when they say guaranteed, it's about as guaranteed as anything we can have in our society. Um, and the, the one thing you have to understand is that the guarantees are for the minimum performance of the particular contract. Now, what I've noticed over my career is that most of the guarantee are for a 4% guaranteed cash uh, interest increase. Now, this gets confusing because a lot of people say, oh, that's, that's really, really good. So I'm, uh, I'm going to do this. And I'm like, well, wait a minute. It's, that's what it increases, but there's also a decrease. It's not a net 4% increase because you also have cost of insurance. This is an insurance uh, product. So people have to understand that um, in the illustration that it's, it's a net increase. And that's something that I don't think a lot of people, uh, matter of fact, we had a client not too long ago say, well, this isn't, this isn't, uh, this is deceptive because it, it says it's 4% increase, 
uh, guaranteed cash. And I said, well, it's not a deceptive. You're getting that, that, and then there's subtracting the cost of insurance out of that. Mm, right. Uh, remember, this is an insurance product. We hit that. We hit that all the time telling people this is an insurance product out there on the internet all the time. People are trying to call it different things and so on and so forth. But the bottom line is an insurance contract. So we have, that's the guaranteed side. Now the non-guaranteed side, um, we have to say that legally. And, and that is the truth because it's non-guaranteed. Dividends are not guaranteed, but they're highly anticipated and they're highly probable based on the fact of history. Now, we represent several uh, companies, all of them that have been around for uh, over 100 years, and all of them have paid dividends for the past 100 years plus. Uh, that doesn't mean they're going to pay the exact dividend illustrated, but they all have paid uh, dividends. Now, the other thing that you have to look on the illustration is some people illustrate it at 100% the current dividend. Some do it at 75, the current dividend scale, and some do it at 50%, the current dividend scale. And Bruce, I, can you just share what you mean by that? What is 100%, 50, okay, 75? Okay, very good. Yeah, that's a great point. So every year, um, what happens is, is a company will look at, let's talk about what dividends are, I guess. Um, what company takes all premiums in, and then they actually put them in very conservative, interest-bearing accounts for the most part. And when I say for the most part, I mean like 97%. So they're looking at corporate bonds. They're looking at treasury bonds. They're looking at mortgage-driven interest uh, products. They're looking at derivatives. They're, they're looking at some, just a small sliver of like 3% or less for most companies of in the other securities-related things. So they're making a profit both um, on the people's money that they send in. And oh, by the way, they also make money on the, the loans that they lend out uh, mm -hmm. to clients. Because they're receiving interest on the payback of those loans. That's exactly right. And frankly, they, they don't mind because the, most companies are at 5% of interest. And that's, that's better than they can make on a lot of uh, uh, treasury bonds anyway. Corporate bonds, they can do better because they have such great buying power. Uh, on that particular thing. And then, they, then they, they look at their mortality expenses, how many people died, and then they look at the expenses to run the company. At that point, there's a, a net profit that comes out, and then they, the, the board of directors decide to put some of that profit into reserves, and then they have, they have a profit that they, they can now distribute to the policyholders in the form of a dividend. And that dividend will be a percentage. And that doesn't mean every particular uh, policyholder is going to get the same percentage, but it will be a declared percentage. Most of the, uh, I just did a research on this, and most of the company's percentages are anywhere between 4.9 and 6.4% right now. Even there, that's a little deceptive because some of uh, some companies declare it as a gross dividend and some declare it as a net dividend. And, um, and that also doesn't mean that's how much you're getting in your policy because of, you mentioned the 100%, 75%, 50% application of dividends to your particular policy. So you're, you receive dividends on the basis of your contract. 
Correct. And then, and then uh, they will, most companies do illustrate it based upon the current, like if, if somebody's paying a 5.2% dividend, then they're going to illustrate it going forward as 5.2% for the rest of the, the contract period. So yes, that and I think that's extremely important because right now dividends are in a lower environment because they follow generally the bond market. And yes. generally, we're in a low interest rate environment right now. So you're going to see lower dividends than, say, in the 80s or 70s, I believe. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. There were companies, there were companies in the early 2000s that were uh, paying 9 plus percent dividends. And those same companies now are paying 5% dividends. So the illustrations from that time period will not look as good. Mm-hmm. We believe that interest rates cannot go much lower, and right. so any any policies that's illustrated now on the div, the current dividend scale, as interest rates tick up, they're actually going to increase. They're going to perform better than the illustrated amount. Now, here's something else to consider: the how the companies apply the dividends are also different. Some companies do not apply the dividend on the base policy early in the contract. They only Mm. apply it to the PUAs. Most companies, though, apply it to the base policy more than they do the PUAs. So you have to know the difference because if you build a very small base policy and that company is paying most of its dividend on the base then as interest rates rise, you can't all of a sudden change the contract and say, I want more base so I can get more dividends Mm -hmm. because the contract is written in stone at that time. So there's an art here that that we believe that you really need to have enough base dividend to take advantage of the rising interest rate environment over over the, the course of the contract going out into the future. So there's a delicate balance here. So there's not just one formula that a, a person says, uh, well, you need to do 20% base and 80% PUAs. Uh, or you say, well, you need to do 50% base and 50% PUAs or 10% base and 100% or 90% PUAs because every company applies the dividends differently. So you're looking at policy performance, not just the design. Yeah. And I think what's really interesting here. So in order to look at what ratio you think you should have, first you need to understand the difference between base and PUA. You need to see what they do. And then after you understand the difference between base premium and paid up additions riders, then it's really important to understand how they are paid or how dividends are credited along with that. Because Bruce, I mean, there can be so many different variations. And a lot of times people will say, well, I want faster growth. I want more access to cash value early up front in the policy. And so therefore, the only way to do that is 10% base, 90% PUA. Or I want long-term performance. So the only way to do that is all base policy. Or I want as much death benefit as I can get. So I want an all base policy. There's a lot that we want to think about. And again, you mentioned it's an art. I think it's really an art and a science to this because you want the maximum access to cash value up front in the policy, but we don't want to sacrifice growth in an unknown future environment where we think the dividends are probably going to be going up. And then there's also policy flexibility in terms of how are you going to pay those premiums and do you have flexibility for paying them differently in the future? 
Yeah. And, um, you know, some people have this idea that um, there's some kind of, um, uh, they're actually some kind of, I don't know exactly how to say it, but they're, they're, they're the best uh, producers out there because they lower the base to 10% and then do 90% PUAs because they say, you know, the only reason people are doing 30% base or 50% base or 100% base is because they want to get paid a higher commission. Well, actually, the commission schedule, this is an actuarial-based product. So if you understand math, the overall payment to a producer over the life of the contract is the same whether you go 10% base and 90% uh, PUAs because there's, there's less paid to the producer on the 90%. But then in the following years, the, the, you get mm. paid more on the PUA than you would as you continue down the contract. Because the base policy is actually paid. It's a, it's a one-year yes. payment on the base policy. So if you make the, the PUA larger, commission payment, yes, on the base. But the, but the PUA policy continues to get commission payments. Uh, now, once again, that, that varies too, but, but uh, most of the time, at least for 20 years. So you're, you're, it's an actuarial uh, product. I know I keep saying that. But they know how much commission they're going to pay out for, to, to producers to present this product. They know it, whether they pay it all in the first year or whether they pay it over 20 years. So this, this, this uh, thing where the, there's people out on the Internet or people that are down the street that are saying, well, yeah, we do it like this because we want to get paid less commission. Mm. Um, well, yeah, you get paid less commission the first year. But as a trail, you, you get paid the same amount. And people, I think, uh, instinctively, now that I've explained that, they probably understand that. And the next thing I want to talk about is people might say, well, as we say on the compensation, because compensation is a driver of dividends because it's an expense, is that some people will say yes, but uh, people, if people don't put the dividend in, I'm sorry, not the dividend, if the people don't put the PUAs in in the future, then that person will not get paid. That is true. So then you have to ask yourself, when a, if a person's getting paid only 10% on the base policy the first year, are they really uh, having a viable business so that they can sustain themselves so that they can be around for 20 years, 30 years, so on and so forth? To be able to service like a, you and your policy, you. yeah. Yeah, and, and Rachel, I know you know this. We're getting more and more people that are reaching out to the money advantage, mm -hmm. and they're saying, I don't think my policy was designed very well, and I can't get a hold of my producer, or they're not around anymore. Mm -hmm. And so I don't know what to do. And, and we've actually had some people say, I feel bad because you guys aren't going to get paid for this. And we don't feel bad helping them because we want the industry to thrive mm -hmm. in this situation. Right. Well, I think most people, they, they want people to get paid a fair wage because they're also in a career. They want to get paid a fair wage. Right. So, so espousing that, hey, we're pulling this down so we, that we only get paid a little small commission is not the best way to design a policy either. So there's all these different factors that are, are in the policy design. Absolutely. And I think when it really comes down to it, you have to think about what is giving you the greatest value. As a policy owner, what is going to give you the greatest value? What is going to get the best use value today as you first 
start a policy or in 25 years down the road. And I guess what is really important to think about as well is the non-guaranteed side of an illustration is not showing you what is exactly going to happen in the future. What, what they're illustrating, as Bruce, you mentioned earlier, is that they're illustrating if dividends continue at today's dividend rate. But think about this. What if dividends actually increase in the future? Your policy could perform much higher than what your non-guaranteed values show and vice versa. But again, we talked about there's not a lot of down room for, for dividends to go down in the future. And we think that we're more on an environment where dividends are going to be increasing. And so when you think about that in a long-term perspective, you want to make sure that you're maximizing your long-term growth in the policy as well as your early cash value. It's not valuable to you to trade off one for the other. If you say, well, the long-term growth doesn't really matter that much. I'm just going to focus on early cash value. You are giving up what the policy could do if you maximized this policy in your favor. And the other thing that I really want to mention here is that, again, it's not all, all policies. If you design any policy across the board with any carrier, any product type, with a 30% base, 70% PUA. They're not all going to perform the same. They're not all going to have the same amount of early high cash value or early cash value in terms of what percentage of your premium you put into the policy is now available for you to take out in a policy loan. And so it's more important to look at the performance and looking with that lens you're instead of looking at the levers inside the policy and saying, well, how much percentage of base and PUA do I want? It's better to zoom out and say, what is going to give me the highest early cash value and the best chance of long-term growth, especially if dividends increase in the future and most of your dividend growth is going to happen on your base policy. So that being said, there are products that are performed differently. And even at a 50-50 base PUA ratio might perform better than another product that has 10% base and 90% PUAs. And so it's really important to not think this is an apples to apples across the board comparison. Here's one ratio you apply in every single case and it always works out that way. And I think sometimes people can become very short-sighted if they hear this is the only ratio that works. And if you don't use this particular ratio, you're not going to have the right policy. You're really going to be misguided if you're focusing on that signpost rather than focusing on the destination of your journey. Yeah. And, um, you know, I, I often quote, um, Nelson Nash because he was such a big influence and he, and, you know, I've been doing this, uh, solidly for the last 12 plus years. And then also did it. I started in the eighties and I learned a lot. First of all, one of the companies we represent in the eighties, Franklin life, was then bought by American uh, or AIG, and their, their dividend performance is not very good anymore. So I actually saw where the dividend performance went down. But Nelson used to always say, uh, there are no deals in the life insurance industry. Mm -hmm. and, and so people have to understand that. So if a person's saying, well, it's a lot better to do it like this, um, you have to say, well, wait a minute, I thought there were no deals in the life insurance industry. The other thing Nelson would say is, um, you know, we, we've come to this, what we call the arrival syndrome or the park or Parkinson's law, 
which we talked about on this, the arrival syndrome is, you know, you think you've learned everything and, and you've, and you've got it all figured out. You and I, I hope, have, will never come through the arrival syndrome. Hopefully not. I mean, I feel like that's a really dangerous place to be where yeah. you think you know it all. And in Parkinson's law, he always says it's the hardest one to actually overcome for an individual. And that's as, in, as it, uh, income uh, rises that you, uh, expenses rise. Well, what I've seen over my career is uh, you design something that people are really good about taking their capital and putting it in the first year. And then the second year. And then the third year comes about and they're like, oh, well, I bought a boat or I bought a car or I bought this or I bought that or I did this. Or some things are out of your control. You lose your job or your spouse loses your job. So then you're trying to figure out, well, what do I can or the minimum I can put in my policy for this year? I'll catch up later on. Well, if you do that on certain designs where you don't fill it up totally, well, then it's not going to perform the way the illustration says. And if you limit it where you now say, um, you know I, know, I know we keep talking about about 10 or 20% base, and, and now you have a rising interest rate environment, um, then that means you only are going to get a dividend performance on 10 or 20%. But if you can put 50% fifty uh, percent uh, of a premium in, but that 50% of premium is all base, well, then now you're getting a higher dividend on a rising interest rate environment. So you really have to look at uh, everything, not only the performance, how it's designed, but also people's general habits or what I call life gets in the way. You know, you lose your job, you get another kid, you, you don't, you're not disciplined, you know, all those things have to come about. And then some people say, well, wait a minute. Uh, wouldn't it be better to have only 10% because then I can go down to 10% and if life gets in the way? Well, that's true, but if you have it built at 30, 40, 50% a higher dividend, you can actually use the dividend to make your base, po um, base payment that year. That's a good you can point. Actually yeah. So there's all kinds of flexibility things that you, you have to take into consideration when we're talking about policy design that is very, very conf con confusing for the average person. And I think it garners a lot of questions then is, is this the right design for maximizing my benefit? And I think, I mean, ultimately I would say it really comes down to, are you working with somebody who has your best interest at heart? And at the same time, nobody cares about your financial future as much as you do. So you should be an educated consumer as much as your life allows. Follow you know, figure out exactly what is the best thing for you to do and be as knowledgeable and as educated as possible. But then it really comes down to building a relationship with somebody that you know that has your best interest at heart that isn't just in it just to get a big commission check because we know that dollars follow value and that the person who is giving you the most value will be paid appropriately and their business will flourish as a result as well. So we hope that through these types of conversations, that we bring concerns that show up in our meetings and conversations with people who are about to implement privatized banking for themselves and also people who have had poorly designed policies that are not maximizing their advantages and benefits. We use all of this experience and knowledge that we have gained and built and we would like to just reveal it and disclose it up front to you. And I, I hope that that gives you more peace of mind in terms of 
recognizing when you're getting the right type of policy design or when you're working with somebody who really is fluent in understanding the implications of what is going to happen with a particular type of policy design. So that being said, um, I hope that this was interesting to you and that you hung with us through this conversation. It may be something that you want to come back to. And at the same time, we really want to make sure that you are in a position of control, maximizing your control. And that's really what privatized banking and whole life insurance is all about. So in closing, I want to let you know that if you are interested in finding out how to use privatized banking, or you want to have a second set of eyes on a policy that you already have in force, maybe you have questions about funding strategies for that particular policy, or you need to make changes or adjustments, or you are in a position where even outside of privatized banking, you want to find out how to keep more of the cash flow that you are making, or get into alternative investments that are producing an income stream for you, come talk to us. We'd love to be able to be a resource for you. We have a strategy call that you are welcome to come into. And the way to get to that is at themoneyadvantage.com. And you can go ahead and book a call and get on our advisor's calendar. And in closing, remember, success leaves clues. So model the successful few, not the crowd, and build a life and business you love. Discover the secret of how to earn a return on the same money in two places at the same time so that you can strengthen your investment returns. We've created a free guide for you that explains the top three things every investor needs their privatized banking system to do. Go to themoneyadvantage.com slash banking, put in your name and primary email address, click the send my free guide button right now, and we'll see you on the inside. Thank you for listening to the Money Advantage podcast. Today's show notes and resources are available for you on themoneyadvantage.com. If you like this episode, make sure you subscribe and leave a review. If you have any questions or desire to speak with a qualified financial professional after listening to today's podcast, we encourage you to reach out to us at hello at themoneyadvantage.com or check us out at themoneyadvantage.com. The opinions and views expressed here are for informational purposes only. This material is educational in nature and should not be deemed as a solicitation of any specific product or service. All investments involve risk and a potential loss of principal. Kalos Capital Incorporated nor Kalos Management Incorporated offer tax or legal advice. Please consult with a tax advisor or attorney for advice regarding the impact on your portfolio. Securities offered through Kalos Capital Incorporated member FINRA, SIPC, MSRB, and investment advisory services offered through Kalos Management Incorporated and registered investment advisor, both located at 11525 Parkwood Circle, Alpharetta, Georgia. E3 Consultants Group is not an affiliate or subsidiary of Kalos Capital Incorporated or Kalos Management Incorporated.